You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. One of the things I left out, um, I've left out in both services. I don't know why. I'm a little bit, you know, I'm, I have my notes, but I don't read them. And, uh, and it comes out different in every sermon uh, because of that. But uh, one of the things we struggle with is where to put certain issues in the essential category or in the non-essential category. And so there's a controversy sometimes really between Romans 1 and Romans 14. You know, Romans 1 is where Paul really lays out the the essentials and, and concludes with, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But remember, in Romans 1, he uses human sexuality and our failure there as a symptom of our willful rebellion against God. But there's quite a controversy. I mean, there's some that want to put uh, sexual issues in the Romans 14 chapter as kind of matters of a different difference. You would, uh, uh, you know, some Christian would agree that um, we ought to bless gay marriages. Other Christians would say, well, no. So you see, I see the issue of human sexuality, promiscuity, premarital sex, gay sexuality as a Romans 1 issue, not a Romans 14 issue. And yet there are other pastors that are writing books and arguing pretty strongly that it's a Romans 14 issue. It's basically a matter of indifference. Christians should agree to disagree. So you can see I could have taken that conversation this morning in a very different direction, Uh, but one that maybe required more time and thought to introduce. but you see, it's not simple. Another thing I didn't say in the first... Hey, don't, I mean, we're into Psalm 139. I know. I, I'm just giving it a minute for anybody that's... Uh, Paul doesn't give a menu to the church at Rome. And he doesn't give them a calendar. He basically says, work it out. You know, you work out the food business. Um, and you work out your how your, your rhythm and schedule for the year. And I find that pretty interesting that, that Paul holds back giving particular advice and allows them the freedom, okay, you, you guys will have to work it out. You have to be, show how you're sensitive to Jewish Christians and, uh, and how they can live with Gentile believers that don't have those scruples about what they eat. Uh, but he doesn't prescribe how to do that. Yeah. Well, I was thinking I'd get some kind of visceral discussion, but didn't. Um, these, this next month or so is important in the life of Advent for thinking through what we do, why we do it, how we do it. So it's an opportunity here really to, to focus on on worship and communication and, and mission and, and what we're about as a church. So uh, there's three booklets. 
uh, when I picked it up, I picked one up this morning, and then it, only in the service when Craig was introducing it did I realize that there are three books. There's an affirmation of purpose, priorities and planning, and the devotion and prayers. And as was said, this is the most important one because the, uh, we want to be praying together over these issues and for the life of the church. And so uh, this doesn't happen all the time where we have this sort of concerted effort to focus our devotional thoughts and our prayers on what is happening here at Advent. So let's take advantage of it. It's only for a particular period of time. Uh, what is it, six weeks for each issue, a week for each issue. And uh, Andrew will be focusing on these issues in, in the dean's class as well. So either you bolt my class right now, run up to the dean's class, or listen online um, to that uh, discussion that will go on in the, in the dean's class. Any comment, question? Well, today we continue our, our study in in Soulcraft, which I defined as the art of discerning, applying, and enjoying the wisdom of God in every aspect of life. And we kind of talked about the, the soulful self uh, last week, and uh, I want us to focus on uh, Psalm 139 uh, today. This is such a beautiful psalm, and uh, I have I've studied this psalm in some context. I'm forgetting which, uh, maybe in a dean's class in the summer uh, before, but it factors in uh, largely in uh, in this soul craft discussion. Remember, part of the emphasis with craftsmanship is that it's kind of a hands-on, real-world earthy kind of effort that we give to the application of and the integration of our walk with Christ in all of our relationships. And the holicity of that, the completeness and the comprehensiveness of that, that that we don't compartmentalize. And, uh, you know, if if you've known a real woodworker, a real craftsman. Uh, you know how that just that whole uh, ability and expertise permeates that person's life. And uh, I think we uh, we talked last week about the importance of practice in musicianship and how practice and implementation and practical outworking is really what part well what we'd like to emphasize with this soul craft. And the text we used last week was Philippians 1, 9 through 11. This is my prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you would discern what is best and be filled with the fruit of righteousness until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's not a pastor's prayer. That's not an apostle's prayer. That's not a missionary's prayer. That is our prayer. All of those of us who who follow Christ. So there are a lot of aspects on the study sheet last week that I I didn't even touch on. But uh, Psalm 139 will focus our attention this morning. Let's uh, pray. Lord God, we do pray for the discussion that's going on in this church as to what we're about and we've been about. And as we continue focusing 
on these important aspects of the life of a church together, not to the exclusion of anything, but to the incorporation of all into the worship and mission and outreach of this body of believers. I pray now that you would set aside this time, help us to be able to focus, help me to stay tuned, um, and for my mind to work, and for us to really hear your word in the spirit this Lord's day. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. So I'm going to uh, just quickly read through the italicized sections. You've got a study sheet, Psalm 139, 1 through 24, God's parental love. And let me introduce it this way. Uh, Eugene Peterson is a pastor uh, that has had a profound impact on my thinking because he's put words to what I was experiencing. He's by no means perfect, and there was a dust-up this uh, summer on where he stood on human sexuality, uh, which was very disappointing to me, but uh, he still has been a great help to me. And years ago, he wrote a book entitled Growing Up With Your Teenager. It's now titled differently, but it was one of his first books. And I remember him describing the fact that The role of the parent is not some specialized skill set, but the role of the parent is to be a person, to be a real person in the life of the family and before the children, just who you are uh, in Christ. And he said, you know, a baby comes along and we're, we're really humbled. We are really humbled. We don't know the first thing about what to do, even though we've been told and maybe it's even been modeled. It's just a brand new experience, and you're humbled by that. Psalm 139 took on its important significance for me personally on the birth of our daughter, Kennerly. Uh, Kennerly came along after 10 years of marriage, and uh, we had already been wonderfully blessed with two adopted sons we adopted in Toronto as babies. And so Jeremiah and Andrew, and I was told because of my non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, my cancer and the surgery that that involved when I was a senior in high school, that probably wouldn't be able to have children. So that's why we pursued adoption fairly readily. And, uh, and then Kennerly came along, and I remember being close to the delivery room. I wasn't in the delivery room. But the first time I held uh, Kennerly, I just, uh, what, what doesn't belie the notion of nature alone, apart from God? I mean, it's just, you feel like you're holding glory. I mean, there's, there's just this remarkable sense of the uh, profound significance of life, uh, of an image bearer of God. Uh, and... Uh, I preached the next Sunday in our little Baptist church east of the beaches, uh, Psalm 139. And this uh, psalm really uh, came alive then, and it has continued to mean uh, a great deal. But back to Peterson. Peterson says, everybody's so impressed having a baby. But then when you've got a 15-year-old teenager slamming the door, then you're not so excited. But he says, you know... The baby kind of calls us back to first principles of humility and dependence before God. And you realize how dependent and vulnerable we are in life as you hold a vulnerable baby. 
And then just about the time when your faith has gotten sort of stagnant, stale, and old, you get a teenager who's asking all these questions and is maybe resistant and maybe, well, whatever, you know. Um, And you're forced to see your faith through new eyes. You see your faith through the eyes of your teen. And the process that she or he is going through is the process that that you are kind of going through as well. Uh, so praise God for that opportunity to renegotiate. And you know, at various stages in life, I think the faith is reexamined in the light of those relationships. Um, and soul crafters are able to grow through those periods of time and those new challenges that they face. Unselfing self-understanding, the first stanza of the first six verses. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to obtain. You know, Job says much the same thing. You know, you hem me in you behind and before. And for him, Lord, please stop paying so much attention to me. You know, let up a bit. Uh, but for the psalmist here, he's thrilled. He's thrilled to be known. Uh, uh, as the Apostle Paul says, and this is further down that first column, uh, a wonderful conclusion to 1 Corinthians 13, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. That sentence is, is just it's as potent as an atom. <laughs> I think it can be burst open. Uh, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Uh, You really are, we are known, really known by the Lord. Really known. That is a great comfort to the psalmist. It's a great comfort to the apostle uh, to be known in this way and to be not alone. Not to be a cosmic orphan in nature alone. And it is a soul, not a self, we're talking about. Uh, The writing underneath uh, verse 6, the psalmist could have written very simply, Lord, your knowledge for me is total. Why didn't he? (laughs) Why didn't the psalmist just say, you know me completely? Why go with this uh, description when I sit, when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways before words on my tongue. You, Lord, know it completely. Why talk that way? There's a kind of poetry of the soul, isn't there? Um, I, 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 We use language to buy and sell and get things. Um, The psalmist uses language here to be and to become. And so the expression is really important. 
Um, I may have already shared this with you, but um, when Kennerly was 10 and we were celebrating Virginia's birthday, you know, it may be your habit as well. You pass the cards around the table and everybody reads each other's, what they wrote. And uh, I remember, and, and Kennerly was never a smart aleck child. Uh, she was always um, a really, uh, just a, a, a delight. She really was. Uh, I, we joked that there was six weeks in her life where she was not a delight because she had gotten infatuated with some guy at high school. But outside of that, um, she really, uh, her comments have always been quite good. Um, and so we're passing these cards around, and Kennerly looks up at me when she gets my card to Virginia, looks square at me, 10-year-old child, and says, and you call yourself a writer? I never write any card to anybody now without Kennerly's comment echoing in my brain. And you call yourself a writer? And right, she was dead on. I had just scribbled a note. Happy birthday. Love Doug. Love Doug. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and now, because of her comment, I can't do that anymore. Um, the psalmist here is a beautiful illustration of heartfelt, soulful description of what it is to be known by God. Systematic theologians talk about omniscience. I've never quite liked that word. <laughs> I understand it. I, I'm, I agree with it completely. I affirm it. But something like omniscience. But here's a psalmist expression of knowing. Um, you've searched me, Lord. You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. I guess as I think of Psalm 139, I think of uh, the omniscience of the parent versus the total ignorance of the young child. And now, you know, we're at a grandchild stage and you're just aware of how little they know. They may be very personable, they may be very charming, they may be pretty witty, but they just don't know. And by comparison, it's like the parent is omniscient. And it was all about that big, large world. And I find myself before God feeling like the toddler in not knowing. And, uh, and, that, and yet I think Paul is saying, rest in that. Uh, his comment uh, in Corinthians, um, now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. I'm in relationship with one who fully knows me, fully knows, period. Now, Freud explained it differently at the end of column one. Freud explains away this deep-seated emotion poured out in Psalm 139 and dismisses the reality of the all-knowing, all-loving, holy God. How does he explain it? I'm quoting from him at the bottom of the first column. In his book, written in 1928, The Future of an Illusion, when the growing individual finds that he's destined to remain a child forever, and that he can never do without protection against strange superior powers, he lends those powers the features belonging to the figure of this father. He creates for himself 
the gods whom he dreads, whom he seeks to propitiate, and whom he nevertheless entrusts with his own protection. Thus his longings for a father is identical with his need for protection against the consequences of human weakness. In other words, we create in our own mind an image, a mental image. Uh, people pray previously in a more animistic culture would would set up an idol, but we have our mental idols, Freud complained, and they come as about they come from our feelings of vulnerability and weakness and feeling like the toddler, even though we're an adult. The psalmist claims just the opposite. I claim just the opposite, that a parent-child relationship is at best but a faint, albeit tender, reflection of God's abiding parental love for us. The physics of true spirituality. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You and I have friends and we have relatives. We may have uh, children. We may have grandchildren. I do think there's a responsibility here in terms of soul crafting expression, of articulation, of reflection. You may be kind of a quiet, introverted person, but even in your quiet, introverted way, I think how you articulate the faith to those who are looking to you will make a world of difference. Your soul crafting, your uh, taking the time to reflect and to express. This is one of the things that I've really enjoyed about Sally Lloyd-Jones is in the Jesus Storybook Bible is uh, just her theology of story, her theology of expression, uh, the importance of telling a story well. And she's big on the fact that Telling stories to children is just as important and just as significant as telling stories to adults um, and requires that same sort of care and that same kind of uh, nurture. Uh, we can't escape this relationship, nor do we want to. Uh, let's go down to the uh, third section here. We are all ordained third stanza of this psalm. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I guess I'm, I'm not making a case for you all to be poets, uh, but I am making a case for you to show care in how you express. The totality of life is superintended by a sovereign providential God. 
Let me open it up for your comments, your thoughts. What's going through your mind as you hear the psalmist say this? Can it be that, um, as I said last week, life is not measured by what you achieve, but by what you receive, by the grace of God. There is no such thing as human self-sufficiency. There really is no such thing from a biblical point of view of the self-made woman or the self-made man. We are God-dependent creatures who never rise above the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. They'll inherit the earth. These, this is where you never rise above that as a Christian. Let me tell one story, but I, I really do have a question on the floor because I do think it's you can forget this taping business and talk. It doesn't show up on the tape, and uh, Charles is pretty good about editing everything um, out, so uh, the spaces uh, get taken away. I was in the church uh, first. This is back in 1975. I was a youth pastor. Uh, in a church in Glen Allen, Illinois, um, in the Wheaton area of Chicago. And, uh, and Dave Johnson was a student in the youth group who by all outward appearances hated me. Didn't know what I'd done, but for some reason I personified all that he disliked. Um, and he'd be always acting out. It was really difficult and it was kept building. Until one night after youth group, I came outside and um, the headlights on my car were painted orange and the antenna was broken off the car. This is back in the days when cars had antennas. And, uh, uh, and I thought, uh, so I called, I called his folks and went over and uh, right away. And so it's, it's night, it's about nine o'clock at night and Dave is raging raging. He had torn his shirt off. He was bare-chested, walking around the living room, raging at me, at his parents. And his parents were really just sort of cowering. Um, and I knew nothing of that growing up. Um, I never would have talked, referred to my father as cowering on anything. Um, but they were. And he did this for about 10 minutes. And then he just calmed down and sort of fell into the chair exhausted. And I just looked at Dave and said, Dave, there's a lot more going on that you're telling us. And sure enough, he had been, uh, he had a paper route and he was being um, uh, bullied for money on a weekly basis for some time. And if he didn't pay up, he'd be beaten up. And this had gone on. And you know, I sort of said, Dave, why haven't you said anything? And he turned to his parents and he said, I have. They knew all about it. But their response to him was, pray about it. And I thought, how sad. This kid has had to you know, weather all of this storm by himself with parents who spiritualized it, 
who made it into some sort of pious thing, pray about it. And, you know, I know that, you know, and I explained to his parents right away. I said, you know what my father would have done the moment he heard this? He said he either would, he probably would have gone looking for the kids. He would have called the police. He would have called the school. He would have made sure that his son was protected. That would have been his 150% responsibility at that moment from then on in that case and make sure that his son was never threatened again by those kids. Well, it did, I mean, the parents did get on with it, but um, I guess the way the Lord is providentially sovereign over our lives teaches us, in some sense, our responsibility for others. But let me hear from you. I've said a lot here that ought to trigger some sort of reflection and thought. Yes, doctor. Nobody else will say anything, I will. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, we are all ordained. Sigmund Freud, Albert Einstein, two geniuses, never felt the ordination. Hmm. They, they knew that they were intellectually superior because everyone else was looking to them for answers. And they felt the power of themselves and no need for the higher power. And that, I think, traps many people into their own human powers Mm. so that they don't ever feel the need and feel the touch from God. And I think uh, that's where Christians who really feel touched by God and understood by God, as these writings point out so poignantly, mm-hmm. you know, it's the difference, I think. Hmm. Sometimes what we have achieved does get in the way of our receptivity. Exactly. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Kane, you were going to say something? Yeah, I saw it. Given that diagnosis of the press and the noise of our lives, uh, any potential solution that we can encourage one another on? This may seem very trite, but 
as a as a musician, you have to set aside time for practice. Mm -hmm. And the best way, and I always told my students, is you set aside the same time every day. In my case, it's from five to seven in the morning. Not everybody can do five to seven in the morning. But what he might do would be if he takes a lunch at the same time every day to shut the office door and set that 15 minutes of your lunch period aside. It's just a suggestion. I don't know. Right. You know. But same time every day, make it a discipline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good suggestion. You really have to figure out how to open yourself to God individually, uh, personally. I finally had to just say, if you're really there, show me. And I got shown. <laughs> you know, it's you have to want to be in tune. You have to want to hear and want to and then be very open to it and look at everything you see and everything you hear with the desire to see God and hear God. Yeah, and I think that's a key word there, desire. We have many competing desires. Uh, can we prioritize this desire for the sake of our children, for the sake of ourselves, for the sake of our friends? Uh, can this be our desire? How do we listen to God? Um, how do we know that a psalm like this even exists to shape our souls? And uh, only by being in the Psalter, only by praying Jesus' prayer book. Uh, well, I'm going to count on the fact that some of you are thinking more deeply than you're expressing right now. Okay? I'm assured of that. I'm believing that. If you turn the page over to verses 17 and 18 in the italicized, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Uh, oh, learning how to kind of revel in the truth of God. Reveling in the fact that all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. It's not a haphazard, helter-skelter, come what may, I've got to achieve my goal type of life. It is resting in God. And I don't think that's a recipe for sloth. I don't think that's a recipe for laziness. I think that's an inspiration and a motivation for action, not the opposite. To know that you're really cared for. Who are children who thrive? Children that are disciplined, that are loved, that are ordered, that are cared for. Those children thrive. And the psalmist is saying, that's how I feel in terms of God. I am cared for, I'm loved, I'm known, and in that I can really thrive. I can thrive as a musician. I, you know, I can thrive as an attorney. I can thrive as I can thrive because of this truth about me. Uh, the pressing need for divine intervention. There's a, a switch, a tone in the psalm in verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. And this enemy talk is needed. We we live in a very difficult world. 
If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. And the Christian sort of says, well, aren't we supposed to pray for our enemies? Pray for those who persecute us and love our enemies. Yes, indeed. But at first acknowledge and vent the real hate that's there to God. And that's the beautiful sanctifying thing about this truth in the psalm is that what's vented is to God and God is in charge. God is in control. Uh, and interesting how this follows after the claim of ordination over all aspects of life and yet the intrusion, the threat that the wicked become. In verse 23 and 24, finally, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The invitation for the Lord to examine us, uh, to be open before the Lord. And we kind of uh, will end with where we uh, focused last week from the Philippians 1, 9 through 10. Uh, may your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best, may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. C.S. Lewis uh, said kind of famously, and I'm sure you've heard it before, under that last category, lead me in the way everlasting. In his book, Surprised by Joy, which describes his conversion, he came to the conclusion, I thus understood that in the deepest solitude there's a road right out of the self, a commerce with something which by refusing to identify itself with any object of the senses or anything whereof we have biological or social need or anything imagined or any state of our own minds proclaims itself sheerly objective. This started him on the route to finding the very personal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, as he said, kicking and screaming, resisting God, but God's love was so great as to engulf him. John Calvin has this, I think, great statement in the beginning of his Institutes. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. No person can survey himself without immediately turning his thoughts towards the God in whom he lives and moves. Uh, that's the natural thing to do. The unnatural thing to do is to say that I am my own genius, um, be it Freud or Einstein or whoever, because it is perfectly obvious that the endowments which we possess cannot possibly be from ourselves. It is evident that a person can never attain attains to a true knowledge, true self-knowledge, until he or she has previously contemplated the face of God and come down with such contemplation to look into himself or herself, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are bound together by mutual tie. 
And then finally, a Roman Catholic theologian, Hans Werns Balthäuser, offers what I find is a deep and encouraging insight. The last quote on the page, the last column. Christian childlikeness and Christian maturity are not in tension with one another. Even at an advanced age, the saints enjoy a marvelous youthfulness. Sometimes we speak of people as forever young. Usually that's a commendation. And this I would like to be true of myself. I'd like it to be true of you as well. The kind of uh, wonder and, uh, well, I, I wrote a book uh, on Christmas and I entitled it A Christmas Journey. And we were sort of, uh, we didn't know how to uh, suggest that it be covered to the publishers. And uh, came across uh, a picture of myself sitting on a stair with one slipper off and one slipper on, looking with a look of wonder. I was two at the time. And, you know, it crossed my mind that that look of wonder is still the same way I look at, at truth today. I think you can, you can be childlike, not childish, but childlike and spiritually mature at the same time. And you've known old saints, haven't you? Who have that kind of childlikeness in terms of the freshness, the vitality, the, the humor, the joy. Um, and yet it is blended with a maturity, with a, with a care, with a compassion, with a concern. And those two fit together well. So I commend that whole picture, the Psalm 139 picture to you as a very viable way to live in Christ, guided by the psalmist. Um, and I'm going to just ask you for the next couple of weeks to think about this and pray about it and embrace this psalm, Psalm 139. I'll pray. Lord God, thanks for this time together. Please bless my sisters and brothers in Christ. We pray for those in our congregation who we know of that are in deep need and uh, are searching and uh, this is a period of trial and difficulty for them. May you comfort and encourage and strengthen them in this process. And for those relationships that we are in with friends, with neighbors, with children, with grandchildren, help us to be as the psalmist is to us in the spirit. Uh, a guide, an encouragement, a strength, being able to articulate something of the value that God has brought into our life uh, by his grace and mercy. Uh, together we praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.